If you thought 2019 was ugly, nasty, and divisive, may I introduce you to 2020? The lead starts right now. President Trump blaming Iran for protesters setting fires and smashing windows at the U.S. Embassy in Iraq, the latest on the siege and the safety of the Americans inside. Are cracks forming in the last line of defense for the Trump presidency? A member of the Senate GOP criticizing the majority leader for working so closely with the White House on the impeachment trial. Plus, fires ripping through the Australian coast, sending thousands of people rushing to the ocean and threatening the region's entire population of koalas. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Happy New Year. We begin with our world lead. Hundreds of protesters, some violent, chanting death to America and storming the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, smashing windows, scaling the walls, setting fires, claiming to be angry over American airstrikes on an Iranian-backed militia on Sunday, billowing smoke filling the air beyond the walls of the massive diplomatic, diplomatic compound, America's largest embassy anywhere in the world. Apache helicopters were dispatched by the U.S. military to fly over the embassy. And more American troops are on the way, we are told. The embassy currently on lockdown. But right now, there are no apparent plans to evacuate any personnel. President Trump pointing the finger of blame squarely at Iran and the militia's leadership for fueling the protests and for launching the original attacks on Americans that prompted the retaliation. As CNN's Caitlin Collins traveling with President Trump now reports. A chaotic scene as protesters stormed the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad today, scaling the walls, forcing the gates, and setting fires inside the heavily guarded compound while diplomats were trapped inside. Some protesters were chanting death to America, while others threw rocks at embassy guards who fired back with tear gas. The backlash is coming after American airstrikes on an Iran-backed militia group in Iraq killed dozens of its members. The U.S. said those strikes were in response to a missile attack on an Iraq military base that killed an American contractor, though a spokesperson for the militia group denied they were involved. We will not stand for the Islamic Republic of Iran to take actions that put American men and women in jeopardy. On Twitter, President Trump blamed Iran, accusing it of orchestrating the attack on the embassy and warning that their government will be held fully responsible. With tensions flaring, the president spent less than an hour at his golf course today. Though he was dressed in his usual golf attire, Trump said he had a meeting on the Middle East and would provide updates throughout the day from his Mar-a-Lago club. Senator Lindsey Graham, who golfed with Trump yesterday, also said he met with the president and that Trump is determined to protect American personnel and expects our Iraqi partners to step up to the plate. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo also spoke with the prime minister of Iraq today, and a spokesperson for the State Department said there were no plans to evacuate the embassy. The U.S. ambassador is on vacation and wasn't at the embassy when it was attacked. Defense Secretary Mark Esper also announced the U.S. is sending additional forces to reinforce embassy security, including Marines who were seen here preparing to deploy from neighboring Kuwait. One Democratic member of the Armed Services Committee said Iran was trying to ratchet up tensions with the United States. We know uh, Iran is no ally of us, and they're really going out there trying to push our buttons and see how far they can get. 
Now, Jake, President Trump has also spoken with the prime minister of Iraq. And according to the White House, the two of them discussed regional security issues. And President Trump emphasized the need to protect United States personnel and facilities in Iraq. But it's still to be determined if this gets escalated even further or if things start to tamp down after this, Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins traveling with the president. Thanks so much. CNN's Arwa Damon has covered the security situation in Iraq extensively. She joins me now from the region. Arwa, there were a chance of death to America and demands that the U.S. leave the country. What is the situation on the ground right now? Well, Jake, what we now know of the situation is that those fires that were set seem to have been largely put out or decreased. And Iraq's counter-terrorism uh, units finally arrived on the scene and are securing, it seems from images that we have been able to obtain, uh, securing the perimeter. However, there are tents that have been put up where the protesters do remain just on the road that runs in front of the U.S. Embassy. And what Kata'ib Hezbollah, that group that the U.S. targeted on Sunday, is saying is that these are open-ended protests until they say the U.S. actually agrees to leave Iraq. And they say that in all of this, their message wasn't just to show their anger at the strikes, but to also show to the U.S. that at least in Iraq, they can literally walk right up to their doorstep, Jake. And Arwa, this Iranian-backed militia was part of the coalition that fought against ISIS. Uh, Tell us more about this group. How powerful is it politically and, and militarily? Very powerful, Jake, because prior to their role in this uh, coalition, that is something of a paramilitary unit that was established during the fights against ISIS, these various different militias gained their experience fighting the Americans in Iraq. The vast majority of them are, yes, backed by uh, Iran. And they also now today not only have a force, an armed force that is a part of this paramilitary force that ostensibly falls under the Iraqi security forces, but they also have significant representation in Iraqi parliament, which is one of the many reasons why uh, Iraq is so fragile today, because you have these forces that don't necessarily abide by the orders being issued by Baghdad, and who also have a very strong grip within the Iraqi political spectrum. All right, Arwa Damon, thank you so much. Stay safe. Joining me now to discuss this is Douglas Asiliman. He's the former U.S. ambassador to Iraq under both Presidents Trump and Obama. Also with us, Robin Wright. She's a joint fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace and a Woodrow Wilson Center uh, who has written extensively on the Middle East. Thanks so much for being here, Ambassador. Let me start with you. You you recently, relatively recently, left your post in Baghdad. If you were advising President Trump today, what would you advise him? What would you tell him to do about these protests? I think what we're seeing now is an attempt by Iran and the uh, Iranian proxies and supporters inside Iraq to change the debate inside the country. Um, Iraq has been shaken in the past three months by hundreds of thousands of young Iraqis in the streets protesting lack of good governance, government corruption and Iranian and militia interference in their lives and their futures. Um, What Iran and some of these militias, including Qatayb Hezbollah, are now trying to do is define the American response to the death of the U.S. military contractor as a violation of Iraqi sovereignty and uh, to try to turn the tables and switch the debate away from the problems that Iran has caused in Iraq 
and define a set of problems that they will blame on the United States. Uh, what is also interesting, and I've been hearing this on my Twitter and WhatsApp feed from Iraqis all day, is that um, many Iraqis are defining, uh, defining the members of Qatayb Hezbollah who attacked the American embassy not as protesters as much as the media is, but as attackers. Mm -hmm. They planned to go there, it was set out, and they believe that it cheapens the meaning of the protests that have been carried on for the past three or four months by average young Iraqis against Iran and against uh, the inefficiencies of the Iraqi government to paint them with the same brush. So I've been surprised by the number of people who have told me, when you're talking to the U.S. media, don't call the protesters in front of the embassy protesters, call them attackers, because that's what they are. Attackers. And, and, and Robin, I mean, that does square. We've seen photographs of some of the people, the attackers, if you will. Uh, and they a lot of them appear to be or they've been identified, at least, as heads of this militia. Absolutely. And the popular mo- mobilization forces in some ways are the kind of Hezbollah of Iraq. They are the pro-Iranian proxies who have not only their own local agenda, but have Iran's interests at stake as well. And so I think that's one of the great problems. How do you deal with a force that the government doesn't have total control over that is multidimensional? There are over 60 branches of the militia that fall under the popular mobilization forces, each with their own leadership. Uh, And so Iraq today is incredibly complicated, many, many layers, whether it's the protesters uh, who are taking to the streets to challenge the government or it's those who are attacking the United States. One of the big questions in the middle of all this, 17 years after the U.S. intervention in Iraq, is the United States losing the ability to influence the direction or are the prospects of a stable democracy disappearing? That a lot of the things we invested in, is this a country that is disintegrating at different levels into chaos? Well, why don't you answer that for us? Because one of the questions I've seen on on social media today from Americans is, they don't want us there. Why are we there? And, and beyond whether these are attackers or protesters, uh, there obviously have been a great number uh, for years and years and years of Iraqi politicians expressing the desire uh, for the U.S. to leave. Um, I remember a very famous statement by the late Senator John McCain from the summer of 2011 that every Iraqi with whom he spoke wanted the U.S. to stay militarily in Iraq at that time. Um, I was in Iraq at the same time and found that most of them wanted us to stay, but none were ready to say that publicly mm-hmm. or to vote in the parliament to permit that to happen. What happened after the defeat of ISIS in 2017, 18, and into 19 was a significant number of Iraqis who were willing to stand up and say, the United States, the coalition military force, uh, the United Nations, and other international institutions seek to build a sovereign Iraq. We need them to stay here until that job is completed. And what I think will be interesting, there will be pressure in the coming weeks, probably in the parliament and from some of the same people you saw in front of the embassy this morning, to push what they will define as all foreign forces out of Iraq. It'll be interesting to see whether those supporters of the United States who understands what we did in the fight against ISIS and how we are trying to build sovereign, stable institutions in Iraq will continue to support us publicly and push back on that definition. And Robin, something else you've been following for years now, of course, is the conflict between the United States and Iran, and this is a big part of that. Absolutely. And of course, they're vying for influence in the region. And in many ways, the Iranians have greater sway in places like Iraq, in Syria, where the United States again withdrew many of its troops recently, uh, in Lebanon, 
Uh, there are counter strikes. There are challenges to Iranian influence. Iran's under extraordinary pressure. But the fact is that despite all the things the United States has done, that Iran still is our primary adversary and able to, whether it's attack tankers, attack Saudi oil facilities, uh, that it's still a major power and, and a major challenge to American interests. Or kill American uh, contractors, as happened recently. Uh, Ambassador Robin, thank you so much for being here, and Happy New Year to both of you. Appreciate thank it. Um, President Trump and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell may not want them, but one Republican senator is open to hearing from witnesses at the Senate impeachment trial. Who is it? Stay with us. In our politics lead today, new signs that at least a couple Senate Republicans might be concerned about whether Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is setting up an unfair impeachment trial process. Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins joined her colleague Lisa Murkowski of Alaska expressing reservations. Collins also saying she's open to having witnesses testify. CNN's Phil Manningly joins me now live. And Phil, both of these senators have said they don't care for how McConnell said there will be no difference between the president's position and Senate Republicans position. Yeah, Jake, that's exactly right. Raising concerns about, the, about what the majority leader has said, how he's made clear that he's working hand in glove with the White House on this process. But also uh, Senator Collins from Maine, a moderate up in 2020, raising some concerns more broadly than that about people across the aisle. Take a listen. It is inappropriate, in my judgment, for senators on either side of the aisle to prejudge the evidence before they have heard what is presented to us, because each of us will take an oath, an oath that I take very seriously, to render impartial justice. Now, Jake, let me tell you kind of the most important thing here. We're all kind of reading tea leaves on what people are saying, particularly when they're back home in their states. Here's what actually matters. Both Collins and Murkowski seem to be behind Majority Leader McConnell's idea or proposal at this point in time to just start the trial with arguments from the defense, arguments from the House managers, and then kind of see what happens after that related to witnesses and whether to subpoena documents. Obviously, that's what Democrats want in the near term right away in an opening resolution. The bigger question, I think, becomes at this point in time, when Susan Collins says she's open to witnesses or Lisa Murkowski appears to be in the same exact place, will they vote for, with Democrats when they actually get to that point? That, Jake, we'll have to wait and see on. All right. Uh, Phil Manley, thanks so much. Uh, let's discuss. Uh, so, uh, Doug, Susan Collins says she's, she's open to having witnesses. She didn't name any names. Um, is, is Phil right that ultimately this is just for the crowd back home? But when it comes down to it, she'll probably just vote the way that Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate vote. I would say that's probably a cynical view, but not necessarily a wrong view. Um, certainly, if, if you look at what happened with the Kavanaugh hearing um, and ultimately with the vote, that's the impression that a lot of voters in her, her state got. I, I think it's, it's, it's right as a Republican. I think we should hear from more witnesses. Presumably, Hunter Biden is not one of the witnesses that she would that she would talk about. But I, I would say also this is we've gone really fast and far in this process and maybe we've gone too fast and too far. Uh, too soon. If we had slowed down this process, we could have gotten some of the witnesses that Democrats wanted um, from from the administration, and and we could have gotten more information as to whether or not we've we've got impeachable offenses here or not. And, and what this is about, uh, Paul, is is whether or not, since Senate Republicans control the Senate, fifty three, right. whether or not you can move a Murkowski or a Mitt Romney or a Susan Collins. Do you see any indication? Do you have any hope as a Democrat that, that you can? This is a tougher vote for Susan Collins and the other moderate Republicans up for re-election than conviction and removal, I think. 
um, because, well, first we know from the polling, the vast majority of Americans, we are divided on everything. The overwhelming majority of Americans want witnesses in this trial. In fact, 64% of Republicans think there should be witnesses in an impeachment trial. Yeah, but they might be thinking Hunter Biden. I mean, well, they, they might be, but they, that may be part of it. But we need to hear, we've had this new reporting from the New York Times, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, at the budget director, and, and what they knew about this. It, it, in that interview, Senator Collins said something interesting. She criticized the House and said that the House should have subpoenaed these officials. Well, yes, ma'am, maybe. If so, you can fix it. You can subpoena them now because you're the Senate and you're holding the trial. It, it, it will be, uh, Democrats should be running ads in Maine, turning up the heat on Susan Collins. They should be running them in Colorado, turning up the heat on Why aren't you? Gardner. I'm not, I don't do that for a living anymore. <laughs> I work here. But yeah, they should. If it was me, I'd be running ads, turning up the heat because she's feeling the heat. That's why she's starting to squeal right now. Excuse me, to, to a waffle right now. That's better. Uh, uh, what you, no, that was on. What do you make of that? Well, there is um, challengers to Susan Collins. There are Democratic challengers, which is partially probably why she is saying what she's saying. Um, Like Doug, I would expect that she would ultimately fall in line and vote with McConnell. But Democrats are trying to, like uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer is trying to size up where he can pull them, whether he only needs about three Republicans to block a motion put forward by McConnell. He needs four in order to put forward a motion if they want to bring witnesses. So right now they're trying to figure out who those people could be. Um, it's unclear if Schumer himself is reaching out to Republicans yet, but there's talk that potentially other Senate Democrats are reaching out to their colleagues to potentially see if they're willing to vote with them to try to force witnesses. And, and Abby, there was this big story in the New York Times that talking about uh, the military aid being held and how it was a longer deal with these you know, fairly incriminating emails from, uh, from the White House Chief of Staff, etc. Senator Schumer, the Democratic leader, said that this shows that they need to have witnesses, but is he going to be able to, to force them to do it? That I don't know. I mean, I do think that this that report really just highlights how much information is not known about what actually happened. I mean, the Republican argument basically is we know everything there is to know and uh, we don't see anything here. Well, that report really uh, shows that there is actually a lot of other information that can be backed up by documentation that is in the possession of the White House and of the Trump administration that could shed more light on the events that actually occurred. The the problem, though, is that, you know, like Doug and Phil, I kind of think that Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, both, who are using very similar language to talk about this, are basically just trying to signal to McConnell, you need to give us a little bit more room to, to breathe here. Don't make it so clear that you are working with the White House. But I don't necessarily uh, think that they are at a place yet where they um, are willing to buck the White House and say, yeah, we want Mick Mulvaney to testify. Yeah, we want the Secretary of State to testify. I think that would be really going a step too far. And even for a vulnerable Republican, it would essentially mean pulling the rug out from under you when you're already in a tough race. You would already lose all of the Republicans in your state who are loyal to the president. Yeah, definitely difficult politics. Stick around. We have a lot more to talk about coming up next with the stabbing suspect searched for on the Internet before that horrific Hanukkah attack. Stay with us. In our National League today, we are learning more about the suspect accused of stabbing five Orthodox Jews with a machete at a Hanukkah celebration in Rockland County, New York. The Pentagon today confirming the suspect's brief time in the Marines. Prosecutors also revealing the suspect's online searches, and they included, Why Did Hitler Hate the Jews? and German Jewish Temples Near Me. Federal prosecutors have charged him with hate crimes against Jews, but as CNN's Sarah Seidner reports for us now, his family insists he's mentally ill but not anti-Semitic. 
Survivors reeling from the Hanukkah stabbing attack that sent five people to the hospital, feeling thankful today that it wasn't much worse. It was truly a Hanukkah miracle. If he would have come in 10 minutes earlier, the house would have been packed. I don't see a way that we could have run. Instead, many fought, including Joseph Gluck. I picked it up from the back and I punched it in his face. Gluck was honored for his bravery and quick thinking. This, as more details spill out about suspect Grafton Thomas, who pleaded not guilty to the initial charges against him. He's now facing 11 counts, including attempted murder and federal hate crimes, after investigators say they found references to Adolf Hitler, so-called Nazi culture, the Star of David, and a swastika in a handwritten journal inside Thomas's home. There is also an apparent reference to the black Hebrew Israelites. Authorities say two people linked to the same movement were responsible for the killing of four people in and around the Jersey City kosher market just a few weeks ago. In what Thomas's lawyer claims is a suspect's handwritten resume, there is a line listing Thomas as a Marine. CNN confirmed he was a Marine in 2002, but was only there for less than two months. The undated resume describes him as highly motivated and lists mental discipline, survival skills and teamwork as attributes. His attorney says he has long suffered with mental illness and is disturbed, not hate-filled. The governor counts this as the 13th anti-Semitic attack in New York in the last few weeks alone. The attorney general now promising action. And we will be establishing a hate crimes task force. Um, and we will be, again, working with local and state elected officials uh, to come up with some legislative fixes and some solutions um, to address what we have um, been witnessing um, throughout the state of New York. Meantime, the witnesses, victims, and Orthodox community at large say they are now forced to overcome fear in their daily lives like never before. It's shock, it's terror. Kids were afraid to go to sleep. People were calling me frantic, crying on the phone. We spoke with Rabbi Shmuel Gantz, who had gone to visit two of the victims in the hospital after uh, they were injured. He told us that the rabbi's son actually had a huge gash on his head. It had to be stapled, but he says it's a miracle of miracles that he is okay and only has minor injuries. Jake? Sarah Seidner, thank you so much. Today in a New York Times op-ed, the congresswoman who represents the New York district where the stabbing took place is asking two blaring questions. One, why are these anti-Semitic attacks, which she calls an epidemic, happening now? And two, what can be done to stop them? She writes, anti-Semitism is not found in one party or group, and there are, quote, multiple ideological sources feeding this paroxysm of hate. It is not a result of a single political outlook. There is no one-size-fits-all profile for the perpetrators of these attacks. Joining me now is the co-author of that op-ed, New York Congresswoman Nita Lowy. She's also uh, the chair of the Appropriations Committee in the House. Uh, Congresswoman, Chair, Madam Chair, thanks so much for joining us. Um, Anti-Semitic attacks in New York and the region are up. Police say they're not largely being carried out by white supremacists or the, or the alt-right. Are these attacks all connected in any way? And what's going on? I think what's most important is that we all speak out forcefully, as I did at this event in Rockland County. I've represented all the good people, a diverse group of people in Rockland for almost 10 years. And they work together, they live together. I am so disturbed that these attacks are increasing, not just here in New York, but all throughout the country. 
and it's important that we speak out forcefully and take action. I organize with my colleagues, there are about a hundred of us who are part of a coalition to address the challenges that we have both here and throughout the country. In fact, this is an epidemic throughout the world. So we each have to do our part in understanding this is real and addressing it. I have organized in Washington uh, an effort to fortify the synagogues, to fortify homes that could be attacked by vicious people who don't understand the great benefits of living together in a society. And for those of us who are in Congress or those of us in positions of authority must speak out forcefully. This epidemic has got to stop. Let me ask you, um, and, and it, it's not related in the sense that you can't compare words to acts of violence, but there was a push earlier this year in the House to condemn anti-Semitic tropes uh, that two of your colleagues had engaged in, ones that you condemned. Then that resolution was changed, and, and critics, critics say that it was watered down. And again, one can obviously not compare words that offend people with acts of violence. But did Democrats fail to take on this issue directly the way that you're calling for it to be right now? Several years ago, I was an organizer of the caucus to deal with anti-Semitic incidents, to deal with those who are perpetrating these kinds of incidents. And I think it's essential now that we all work together from this point on to increase our oversight. I have funded, certainly at synagogues, at churches, all places of worship, uh, protective measures so those within the buildings can be protected. And I intend to continue to do that. Um, before you go, I only have another minute with you. I, I do want to ask you about impeachment. You're a close colleague and friend of the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, is she close to sending over the articles of impeachment to the Senate? And if not, is there a chance, if she cannot reach an uh, agreement with Leader McConnell, that she will not send the articles of impeachment to the Senate at all? I think Nancy Pelosi, our speaker, has acted appropriately and fairly. Thoughtful people such as Adam Schiff have conducted a very in-depth investigation. Impeachment was voted on by the House, and I think the speaker is absolutely correct in wanting to make sure there will be an appropriate process in the Senate to deal with these serious charges. Democratic Congresswoman Nita Lowe of New York, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Mayor Pete Buttigieg is going after former Vice President Joe Biden again. The new criticism about Biden's son. That's next. In our 2020 lead today, Mayor Pete Buttigieg is taking direct aim at former Vice President Joe Biden, saying that he wouldn't have wanted a son to serve on a company's board in Ukraine if he had been working on anti-corruption efforts in the country. But Buttigieg also suggested that Republicans attacking the Bidens are only trying to deflect from the issues at the center of President Trump's impeachment. Let's discuss. Uh, Paul, what is the right answer, quote unquote, the right answer for Democrats when it comes to Hunter Biden being on this board, which I think a lot of people behind closed doors would acknowledge, you know, was swampy and stinks like, you know, 
The right answer is Hunter Biden said it was a mistake. Hunter Biden was right. And then shut up, Mayor Pete, with all due respect. And he says, oh, it's just a diversion. That's why the Republicans are doing it. Then why is he doing it? Uh, I, I don't have a favorite in the race. I really don't have a candidate. But I, I know this. Iowa Democrats, they're not like me. They're really nice. I love negative campaigning. I love, love, love it. Mm-hmm. And they don't. And they get, Pete has to be really careful. This is a multi-candidate race. Democrats believe they have lots of good options. And so when someone attacked, I thought Kamala Harris clocked Joe Biden on busing in the first debate. And she's out of the race. Yeah. It didn't help her. So this is a much less, I think, honorable attack, frankly, than what Kamala was talking about. And so I I just don't think it's going to work for Pete. I don't think it's wise. Although, do you think maybe it's a it's a it's a decent message when it comes to a general election potential? Like, I mean, assuming that Biden does not get the, the nomination, like, you know, it. We shouldn't have this kind of thing. We shouldn't have family members of politicians cashing in on these connections, whether it's Biden or Trump. Well, the better way to do that then is to have it be all on Trump. Then you're having a general election message, which, by the way, Democratic voters, if you want to interpret as also being critical of Joe Biden, you can go that way. I think one of the challenges that Mayor Pete has right now is he's got a bit of a whack-a-mole strategy, which is wherever he sees a mole that might be, uh, you know, in his sights. It's, It's Warren one day, it's Bernie the next day, it's Biden the day after that. He has to really focus down on a, a, a specific and consistent message here, which he's just not doing right now. And let's talk about Senator Elizabeth Warren, because she marked one year of being a presidential candidate with a speech today. Uh, she's trying to rejolt uh, the momentum of her campaign. Politico had an interesting article noting that she's trying to avoid the same fate as Howard Dean in 2004. He had the momentum in late 2003. He looked like he might win Iowa. He finished third. He never was able to mount a comeback with just over one month, month until Iowa votes um, is she following that bad track track of Howard Dean? I think there are definitely some similarities. Uh, right now, Warren isn't in the lead in Iowa. She is about three or four behind there as well as New Hampshire. So it is about whether in this last month she can reclaim that momentum. But also her candidacy uh, has been way ahead of the others when it comes to having a lot of people on the ground in early states, not just there, but also California and Texas. She has a huge amount of boots on the ground compared to other campaigns. And so there's this question of whether or not if you still lose Iowa and New Hampshire, can you make it up with delegates, which is where it actually counts. And that's what people like also Biden are betting on, is that they can make it up in Super Tuesday states uh, with delegates. And and Abby, uh, that political article also detailed some of the ways that Warren has tried to change her campaign since her momentum seems to have stalled a bit. They wrote that she uh, changed her stump speech. She's now taking many more audience questions. She's drawing sharper contrast with opponents after months of trying to stay above the fray. There are more big thematic campaign speeches, more off the record chats with reporters. Good advice. And is there anything else you think she should do? Well, I mean, I do think that that is an accurate description of how Warren started out this campaign really flying under the radar. Uh, A lot of people not really paying a whole lot of attention and they worked really quietly. Now they're in a position where they've been on on the attack and she has to be a lot more, um, you know, forceful about being on the offense and not just on the defense, taking on some of her opponents uh, like Pete Buttigieg in uh, in this uh, sort of attack on the way that he fundraises and his ties to sort of corporate wealthy people. The wine cave. Uh, The the wine cave attack, which has actually become kind of quite quite a big thing on the the Warren and Bernie left. So, you know, Warren is starting to be a little bit more proactive and also taking her campaign a little bit bigger. Some of these big thematic speeches are also about giving voters the perception uh, that she's not uh, duking it out, uh, you know, kind of uh, 
in the, the ring, she is trying to be a little bit more presidential. Her campaign is bigger than these small moments in, in the campaign trail. We want to take a, a moment to acknowledge some sad news in the, in the family today. The influential historian and scholar Gertrude Himmelfarb has died at the age of 97. She wrote more than a dozen books. She helped shape the neoconservative movement. Um, she was the mother of Bill Kristol, uh, who often joins us here at the table. Bill and your family, uh, we're thinking about you, and may your mother's memory uh, be a blessing. Stay with us. Raging wildfires have forced residents to seek shelter on beaches and boats across the Australian state of Victoria. At times, the fire so powerful it blocked out the sun and turned the sky red. Kangaroos were seen fleeing, another major fire in Australia. And this thirsty, adorable koala took a much-needed drink of water from a cyclist. Australia is in the midst of one of the worst summer fire seasons. Record heat combined with strong winds and a major drought have sparked fires across the country with little to no break in sight. In our money lead, President Trump tweeting today he will sign phase one of a trade deal with China at the White House on January 15th. Trump has touted the deal as big news for farmers, but it falls short of the sweeping deal that was promised and lots of details still need to be ironed out. Joining me now is CNN's global economics analyst, Rana Faruhar. Uh, Rana, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, what, what the president calls phase one will be signed in about two weeks. What do we know about what's in it and what's not in it? So what we know so far is that phase one would mean that the president would not impose any promised new tariffs on China. He would also cut in half the tariffs that he slapped on China in September. So that's the U.S. side of this. On the Chinese side, the Chinese are promising to buy a lot more U.S. agricultural goods, up to $40 billion a year. Um, that would be quite a lot more than the most they've ever bought, which is $26 billion in a year. But more importantly, they're promising to uh, really crack down on intellectual property theft and transfer, which is something that big U.S. companies, of course, have been complaining about in China for years. And that's really starting to get to the crux of the, the fight between the two countries, which are over the high growth technologies of the future. Irana, obviously, phase one implies that this is just the first part of it, but we should note it's less comprehensive than yeah. the original plan that, that Trump uh, initially offered. Do you think, as an analyst, an economic analyst, is it a step in the right direction? It's a step in the right direction, but, Jake, it's a small step. And it's really a small deal for a lot of pain. I mean, if you if you look at what's being agreed to, and again, this is just theory, this, this could still go, go awry in the coming year, uh, these are things that the, the Chinese would have put on the table at the beginning of last year. And some of these things are basically walking back uh, problems that the president created. So we've had to deal with a couple of years of real economic pain for uh, getting back to sort of the starting place. We haven't really moved the needle forward. And I think that you can see that in the markets. They're, they're really sort of shrugging off the deal. Hmm. One of the main uh, arguments uh, Trump is making in his reelection is that he, he's overseen this strong economy. What effect might this phase one half for American workers and farmers? And, and might they start feeling it before November 2020? I don't think it's going to make a big deal for workers and farmers, but I think what it may do is if the markets feel we're not going to have any more trade trouble, if we're starting to move towards some kind of more permanent agreement, that's good for the president. I mean, I think that we're going to see 2% growth. The big question is, is that going to be enough for him to run and say, hey, look what a great economy we have? Um, I, I think that it puts him in a better position, certainly, to have a, a trade deal linked. All right, Rana Faruhar, thank you so much and Happy New Year. Coming up next, Happy the new year. way police are securing Times Square as a million people get ready to celebrate the ball drop.
People around the world are beginning to say goodbye, or in some cases, good riddance, to 2019. Earlier this hour, fireworks burst over Istanbul, Turkey. Auckland, New Zealand was the first major city to celebrate the new year with fireworks around the Sky Tower. And Bangkok, Thailand also welcomed 2020 with a similar display. In New York City, people are beginning to file into their pens and prepare to test the limits of their bladders for the granddaddy of all the New Year's celebrations in Times Square, seen as Miguel Marquez is there for us. And Miguel, the New York Police Department says it'll be the safest place on earth to ring in 2020, and they're using new security for the first time. Tell us about it. Yeah, that is the promise, and they already have tens of thousands of people here. You guys ready for a great time? Look, the, the crowds here have been pouring in for hours now. New York Police Department saying that they have everything from the skies to the water around Manhattan to the streets around Times Square completely blocked off and secured. They're going to use drone technology, weather permitting. They were meant to use them last year, but weren't able to. Uh, and they even have an anti-drone uh, unit that will watch for rogue drones in case they need to mitigate those. They also have radiation detectors, bomb-sniffing dogs, thousands of police officers, both in uniform and in, uh, in civilian gear. So they have it covered. They are, they've done this many, many times. They feel that this will be a great show tonight, and people will just have a great time. Bladders notwithstanding. <laughs> Miguel, who was the honor uh, this year of the proverbial ball drop? So every year, Times Square Alliance uh, honors someone. This year, given what they say are the times, uh, science teachers and science students from here in New York City, they will press the button on that main stage up there, and that will bring the ball down at midnight. Okay. All right, stay warm, Miguel. Miguel Marquez in Times Square, thank you so much. If you would rather celebrate from the comfort of your own home, which, to be honest, is going to be safer than Times Square, tune in at 8 p.m. Eastern for New Year's Eve Live with Anderson Cooper and Andy Cohen. Anderson and Andy. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. Happy New Year. I hope 2020 is a great one for you. Thanks for being with us. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.